You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by botanist Roxy Cruz from the Department of Integrated Biology. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, my pleasure. Uh, We actually had one of your lab mates on not too long ago, uh, Claire. That's right. I loved the interview you did with her. I think she did great justice to the redwoods and all those fungi she studies. Yeah, and she told us a little bit about climbing redwoods here in California, but you climb a different kind of tree, don't you? Actually, um, I do help climb those same redwoods. Uh, She studies, um, but I spend most of my time climbing tropical trees in the Andes and in the Costa Rican uh, tropical forests. So uh, we know that redwoods are really tall, but are those tropical trees, like, are they pretty tall as well? Um, Yes. So tropical trees generally are not as tall as redwoods. I mean, redwoods can get to be tremendously tall, like 37 foot building, I think. But tropical trees I'm climbing are no bigger than, let's say, like 100, 120 feet or so. So they kind of pale in comparison to redwoods, but I still get reactions like, that's pretty tall when I tell other people. Yeah, it's, it's definitely tall enough that you need to strap yourself to something, right? Oh, absolutely. If you're going to climb a tree, you have to take a lot of safety precautions and harness yourself into some ropes very securely and make sure you're climbing properly. So are you interested in the trees themselves, or what aspect are you studying up there? Yeah, so I study tropical trees in general along tropical montane gradients. So what does that mean? That means in tropical areas, we typically have mountainous zones, and I like to study the trees along these gradients because there's um, multiple habitats and multiple like ecosystem changes that happens along mountain gradients. So if you're in California listening to this and you've ever seen the Sierras, you know that if you start at the bottom of the Sierras, the trees and the climate and the ecosystem looks a lot different than when you make it to the very top where it's slightly snowy. So basically I study um, trees along this different, along this gradient, and um, I study their survival strategies. And more specifically, I study how they respond to drought and uh, a changing climate. Interesting. So for people who are less familiar with these areas of the world, I mean, I guess when I think of mountains in Central and South America, I think of the Andes. But are you working in that area or is it a different montane area? No, I I do definitely work in the Andes. So um, in South America, I work in the Peruvian Andes. Um, I work where the Andes meet the Amazon. So on the eastern flank, most people are familiar with uh, a national park there known as Manu. And it's right where the Andes dramatically drop down into the Amazon basin. And um, I work more specifically in uh, tropical cloud forests. Um, Tropical cloud forests are basically forests that receive a lot of cloud cover on a daily basis. And it kind of shapes the way that the plants and life that grow there can live and the types of plants and animals that live there. 
So that brings us to our, my next question, because you mentioned drought, but I guess I wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be the first thing I think of when I think of tropical forests and cloud forests, is that drought is playing a role in there. Can you explain that? Yeah, actually, I've had multiple people laugh when I tell them I study drought in a tropical rainforest. Like, what drought? Especially when we're actually standing there in the forest and we're soaking wet in cloud water. But it's a real thing. Um, basically, to simplify it, the scenario with climate change is that rising temperatures are causing cloud cover to rise. So what does that mean? That means that in the Amazon, let's say, you have moisture evaporating from the Amazon basin and rising up. Now that, not to give us a huge weather lesson here, but that basically results in cloud cover being pushed against the forest up in the mountains. And so what's happening is, is these rising temperatures are causing clouds in these cloud forests to either rise or disappear altogether. So we're essentially seeing um, a deprivation of clouds from cloud forests. So why do clouds matter in these forests? Well, they're a really important source of water. And you might think like, well, what if they get rain? Like, isn't rain just water is water is water? Well, there's a big difference between cloud water and rainwater and the types of inputs that forest get. So anyways, we're basically seeing increasing drought scenarios happen in our tropical montane forests, um, not just in Peru and the Andes, but in other cloud forests, other mountainous areas as well, um, which is also why I study this in Costa Rica as well. Yeah, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I've done some zip lining in Monte Verde in Costa Rica. It's yeah. pretty classic uh, cloud forest uh, recreational activity. And Man, I mean, there are days where you can't even see any trees. It's just you're just totally engulfed in clouds. So um, that is that the type of cloud forest you're talking about and working in? Yeah, absolutely. I actually do work in Monteverde in Costa Rica. And um, you do get this like really insane heavy cloud cover. I think it's Monteverde is a nice place to talk about because a lot of people have visited there. And so a lot of people actually have experienced cloud forests in that way. Um, but yeah, you basically have these like daily inputs of clouds coming out and hanging on these trees. And trees act as this really, trees and all the plants growing on them, like mosses and epiphytes and all these other plants, basically act as this intermediary like like net and they basically catch this cloud water and it's a really important function um, not just for you know to water the trees and the plants and the life there itself but it basically regulates water flowing downstream so like just to jump back to the Andes for a moment you have millions of people living in the Amazon you have a tremendous amount of life supported by water that flows down from the Andes into the Amazon. And a big part of the regulation of that water is cloud forests that catch that water and kind of act as like a slow, steady drip down into the Amazon basin. And without that, you would basically just have massive amount of floods and erosion happening. You would see tremendous floods just causing chaos and havoc on all the people um, and life that depends on the water coming from upstream. So cloud forests can be like a really important like ecosystem service for people. Yeah, that's a really good point because it's it's easy to talk about the effects that climate change has on plants and animals, but it's always really important, I think, especially for our audience to tie it back into 
things that affect us as humans, for, for better or for worse. Right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the amount of water that's regulated for all sorts of services, everything from growing the food that people eat to, you know, the water that they can drink um, heavily depends on this kind of water regulation going on up in the mountains. Um, so in the tropics, this is a really important scenario. And how long have the tropical forests been around in Central and South America? Is that a relatively recent thing or is this like as long as the continents have been there? Yeah, so um, that's a really great question and it's a it's a big question um, and I'm not a geologist but I'm going to do my best here to kind of simplify this for us. So at least in what we call the neotropics, which are the tropical forests in um, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean, we have forests that essentially have, well, actually worldwide, the, the forests, the present-day flora and fauna that exist have basically been shaped most dramatically in its present-day form over like the last 20 million years or so, okay? But like, let's let's break it down from 20 million years. We have tropics being basically the source of most of the life that we see today on Earth. So most of the plants, most of the animals that we see, their lineages evolved from the tropics. So the tropics are like a really ancient place. They are a really ancient source of biodiversity for our planet. And so the things that we see today on the planet are either derived from these ancient lineages coming out of the tropics or present day ones. And certainly if we're going to talk at all about the tropics, you really have to consider two pieces of this story. There are you know, plate tectonics, geology, and also climate. And um, it's really the story of those two that bring about how we see the tropics today. But like, for instance, like, let's take South America and let's take the Amazon. The Amazon before the Andes were there was just basically this big, giant basin of rivers and drainage and wetlands, this big, giant area of water and it was very poor in nutrients. Why do we care about nutrients? Nutrients are basically like the resources for life upon which like a lot of the biodiversity we think of today in tropical forests can grow. And then you have over the last 60 to 10 million years um, ago, you have the Andes rising up and forming. And this is really important to the formation of the Amazon because you have these massive mountains that are basically a storage unit of nutrients that are all inside of this bedrock. And you have these mountains rising. And over time, you get all the nutrients that are tied up in that bedrock basically eroding and being deposited down into the Amazon basin as like this nutrient-rich sediment, like this food for life. And it basically flows down in, into the Amazon basin as we know it today and creates this really rich area for life for the tropics. And Central America is a more complicated story in just that it involves a lot of plate tectonics and a lot of movement. Um, even though Central America was separated from South America, you basically have three million or so years ago, you have those two plates crashing into each other. You have Central America and South America finally touching, and then you have like all this interchange of life between the two continents. And so basically, it's like the movement of continents, the movement of these plates, and climate. And so, you know, if you've ever been to a tropical forest, or you think about a tropical forest, you know that it's hot, it's a lot of water, it rains a lot. And so you basically have this kind of climate that's very specific to that type of life happening there. Does that answer the question? Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. And to step step it back just for a second, um, you mentioned that a lot of life has come out of the tropics. This, of course, applies to humans as well, right? Because we evolved in the equatorial region of Africa. But why is it that there's so much diversity in the tropics? What is it about the tropics that fuels life? Yeah, this is a fantastic question, actually. And if we think about it, this is a question that's been central to science and the study of biology since Darwin, since Wallace. I mean, this is a question central to understanding the origins of life. But essentially, the short answer is it's complicated. <laughs> the longer answer is is that there's a lot of different hypotheses. There's a lot of different theories that people have been trying to throw at this question for a long time to try and figure out, well, what exactly is it about the tropics that creates so much biodiversity? And so of all these different hypotheses, there's like a number of themes that come up. We have energy, meaning like lots of sunlight, like lots of heat and radiation coming into the tropics. You have time, you know, the tropics are ancient. You have area, like there's a big area, like historically in the history of the earth, uh, over different uh, times in our earth's history, we have these warm periods on earth where much of the earth is in kind of this tropical climate. There's all sorts of different things that people cite, you know, the, the interactions between organisms, you know, like there's competition for life. So things evolve more quickly because they're like in this arms race to evolve. There's all sorts of theories um, and hypotheses. And one of my favorites is the idea of climatic stability. This doesn't sound as exciting as some of the other ones, but it kind of integrates a lot of these ideas that we have where basically we're saying that because the tropics is less seasonal than, say, North America, the temperate zones, we're not getting periods of freezing. We're basically staying year-round with kind of a stable, a more stable climate as compared to, you know, more temperate zones. Further north you go towards North America and Europe. We have this stable climate where we're basically allowing the ideas that we're allowing for speciation that happens so the evolution of species to happen continue uninterrupted whereas in um, more northern areas like in the U.S. and in Europe and the Arctic we have these massive glaciation events and glaciation if you can think about it basically freezes and rips up entire areas and causes a high number of extinctions now certainly some things can survive glacial events but uh I like this theory because it basically tells us or it posits that things in the tropics have time to continue to evolve uninterrupted as compared to areas that experience like freezing and glacial events. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calyx. My name is Tesla. Today I'm joined by Roxy, who is a plant ecophysiologist in the Department of Integrated Biology. Uh, she's been telling us all about tropical diversity uh, of plants and animals, too, in Central and South America. And uh, you mentioned that you, you climb trees and you do it down there. But have you always been really interested in that part of the world? I saw that you've also worked in other parts of the world as well. So... Um, Maybe if you want to just tell us a little bit about some of your undergraduate research experiences. Sure. Yeah. So I'll just start kind of at the beginning. I'm from 
East L.A. in Southern California, and that's where I went to college. Uh, I went to one of the Claremont colleges, Pitzer College, and um, I was always really interested in environmental science and really interested in plants, um, and they had a field station down there, which is at the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains, and it's coastal sage scrub environment, coastal sage scrub habitat down there, and I basically got interested in doing research on plants in California there. And it was really fun um, because I was able to kind of test out different projects and experiments going on down there. And so I studied what now seems wildly different than what I studied, but we all have to what I study now, but we all have to start somewhere. So basically started studying plants there. And I've basically bounced back and forth between California and the tropics and uh, Asia, I guess. Wow. I've really bounced around a lot uh, since then. So uh, in college, studied California plants, but then I also studied abroad, first in Nepal, which I'll get to in a second, but also in Costa Rica, where I'm doing research now. So Costa Rica was my first time ever um, exposed to tropical ecology um, and um, really fell in love with the tropics there. And as I mentioned, I studied abroad in Nepal and fell madly in love with South Asia and the subcontinent and the Himalayas. Um, so after I graduated from college, I uh, got a Fulbright fellowship to go do research in Nepal. Um, and it's Again, very different than what I'm doing now, but um, I essentially was researching the interface between subsistence agriculture so uh, and subsistence livelihoods and forest management. And for me as a scientist, you know, I had this very strong passage for a uh, passion for the biological sciences and for the natural sciences in general, but I also found Nepal to be this very special place where I felt you couldn't disentangle the natural world from the human world. And so I liked to think that to make myself a good biologist, I had to study both the interface between human ecology and ecology as we think about it in a historical, biological sense. So, oh man, so I spent all this time in Nepal doing all this research and I was very inspired by the Himalayas. I mean, I think everyone should go there. I think it's a really special place where you can witness so many different life forms um, happening in such a short distance. I'll, I'll never forget standing in um, the low elevation plains of Nepal where there's tropical forest and I'm staring at an elephant and an alligator and the backdrop is literally Mount Everest is the highest point in the world. And in um, just like such a short distance, you can go up such dramatic um, elevation. And along this elevation, as I would hike up through the Himalayas to get to my different research sites, I would just see the forest change um, and turn over so quickly. And so I was really inspired by that. In thinking about my PhD research, I um, really like the idea of looking at the quick turnover and the quick change in mountains because I think it's kind of a nice natural laboratory to study climate change and what's happening today on our planet. It's like a, a perfect place to study where multiple ecosystems meet and uh, you can see what's happening. Yeah, that, that so, but it, it still had plants in it, so it wasn't that 
different in yeah. terms of a general perspective. I still studied so. I studied farm plants and I studied tree management and you know we don't have to get into all of that but basically I would hop back and forth between Nepal and the U.S. I was in Nepal for like over the course of like six seven years but I would hop back into the U.S. and I um, also worked in California and southern Oregon as uh, a tree climber uh, for some bit uh, surveying for nests of red trevals, which is where I learned how to climb trees originally. Um, so that's where I first got my experience climbing trees. And then, um, yeah, it just took off from there. And I'm still climbing trees yeah. today. It's really cool to see all the different parts of your research, like coming together through your, your progression through the education system and your different passions. And uh, mm -hmm. but what, So what ended up bringing you to Berkeley in particular? Yeah, well, um, uh, honestly, my advisor uh, who studies redwoods um, just uh, really inspired me, not only with his tree climbing, but his passion for understanding like how trees function and how um, they interface with our ecosystems and understanding the impacts that climate change have on our ecosystems really seemed like a right fit for me. And uh, yeah, I just, I never in a million years thought I would make it to Berkeley, but they let me in, so here I am. They let you in because you deserve to be oh, here. thank you. Of course. Uh, so give us a sense. I can't let this interview go without asking you, what is it like to climb those trees? Like, can you, can you give us a sense of what it's like out in the field? Yeah, climbing a tree. The best part about climbing the tree, uh, not to sound cliche, is but getting to the top. And it's the view. <laughs> I really mean it. I mean, because it's an entirely different world at, in the like in the canopy, like in the tropics, it's so much more pronounced. I mean, it's sometimes you'll be standing at the top of a tree. You can't it's so dense at the top of the canopy. You can't even see the forest floor and you're suddenly realize you're experiencing a whole other level of the forest like you are in. An, an entirely unique forest itself and um, so there's a lot of life in the canopy that we don't know about and um, sometimes you have to be careful for monkeys and uh, <laughs> careful for other rodents but besides that um, it's just like the most amazing place to be. And what are you doing while you're up there? Are you you must be sampling things or you're just looking around, <laughs> doing a little drawing. Yeah, besides having this time of my life, I'm definitely taking uh, samples of the trees. So leaves, stems. Sometimes I have to take entire branches, like really, really big branches. And a lot of my work involves getting up at like 2 or 3 in the morning, making it out to the trees in the dark, climbing them like in a race against time to go cut some branches before the sunlight comes up because that's when they start photosynthesizing and transpiring and losing water. And since I study how trees respond to drought, I essentially have to study uh, their like water status and uh, <laughs> I basically have to make it out there before the sun starts on some days. And uh, yeah, so I'm taking lots of samples while I'm up there. Yeah, I've I've heard from Andrew, you know, my partner, that uh, he's done some pre-dawns and he doesn't even have to climb the trees. But my goodness, it sounds like an exercise in, uh, in uh, energy and and staying awake and love it shows your love for science when you get yeah. up at two in the morning to climb a tree in the dark yeah really it's no fun until you get up there and then everything is fine and then you get the ben added benefit of uh watching the sunrise from a tree and uh there's nothing like it can you give us a little sense of some of the similarities or differences between your sites in costa rica and maybe uh down in the amazon do you see a lot of difference between those sites yeah, I have noticed a lot of differences um, between cloud forests. I've learned they're not all created equal. Costa Rica has a lot more like topographical 
variation. So meaning it's just not as cut and dry as the Andes where I literally can stand at 10,000 feet and look down and see almost what looks like a straight drop down to the Amazon basin, which is in Costa Rica where I work. Uh, It's inland and it's there's not as a steep dramatic gradient the way that there is in the Andes. And what if you had to give us a sense of what are your favorite parts of your research and the most interesting parts of your research? What, What are those? Good question. Most interesting part of my research. Well, I love not just studying how trees work, not just the physiology of trees, not just how they function and how they deal with water stress, but seeing also how they interact with their environment. Um, One of my favorite questions um, is in Peru, where I look at trees that can take up cloud water directly through their leaves. We call this foliar water uptake. Um, It's a phenomenon we see also in redwoods where they can take up cloud water directly through their leaves as opposed to how we typically think about plants taking up water, which is through their roots. So it's cool to see these processes and interactions with the environment. And um, aside from climbing trees, I mean, I just, I love the idea that all this work that I'm doing can be translated back to like the classroom and to other like budding researchers. Like I love outreach. I love to share what I do with my research um, with other people where I'm from. Like I didn't know any other biologists or plant ecologists or anyone like that growing up. I didn't know any scientists growing up. And it's really uh, fun to go back to my eight younger brothers and sisters and show them photos and tell them all about um, what it's like in the tropics and what it's like out in forests. And basically just to like share this knowledge with, you know, where I'm from, but also just the public in general, because uh, it's a tremendous privilege I have to be out in the forest and to be out doing this work. So yeah, I'm just... My favorite part is like being out there, seeing like these trees interact with their environment and like taking that back and sharing these stories. Yeah, I mean, you you touched on this already, but um, obviously outreach is a really important part of biology, especially today. Uh, It's getting a lot more awareness from younger scientists and early career scientists. But do you want to talk a little bit about some of the outreach you do or why you think outreach is important? Yeah, well, I was really fortunate along the along my my journey to meet people who were willing to mentor me and willing to kind of share their stories with me and show me the way and I just feel like I really want to give back to that and inspire other people to you know pursue their passions and if it happens to be in you know tree ecology then you know I'm really happy to do that but I mean I, I see outreach taking on a lot of forms. Like I try and do outreach like within my research just by not just employing but mentoring uh, local students. So like in Peru, for instance, the closest city to my field site is Cusco. So um, I basically take undergraduates who are interested in biology like under my wing and pay them and they help me do my field work but I also help them design their their own thesis projects and their own research and try and like share some of these really advanced physiological techniques I spend all this time here at Berkeley learning I try and share that with them so I try and do outreach just at at like the very small scale with the people I work with and who I mentor I also like to participate in events of on campus or like 
in public, like um, UC Berkeley has this really amazing conference called Empowering Women of Color Conference. It's been running for over 30 years. It's like the longest running conference aimed at uh, empowering women of color in the U.S. And uh, I like to participate in running, like designing and running this conference and organizing workshops. And so it doesn't necessarily just have to be related to science, but I think showing up as a scientist in multiple spaces can be really important for outreach in a lot of ways. And, you know, I like to volunteer and give lessons to high schoolers and, um, yeah, all sorts of things like that to, you know, spread awareness about tree ecology and ecosystems and uh, the natural world. And do you have any advice for students who might be interested in getting in, into research? Yeah, um, I think a big thing that nobody tells you is that you just have to show up and ask. So like if you can get yourself, if you're interested in doing research, let's say you're in high school listening to this. If you're interested in doing research, you got to get yourself to college, step one. If you're in college listening to this, you got to get yourself to a lab. You got to go introduce yourself to your TAs to your professors and you have to say, hi, I'm really interested in doing research. I don't know about what or I'm generally interested in X, Y or Z. Show up and say, how do I do this? Where can I find opportunities? And half the battle is just asking and half the battle is just showing up for it. And um, people will help you along the way. But there's it unfortunately feels kind of like this exclusive club that you have to know to go ask for. So I always try and encourage people just to reach out and see where they can find opportunities. So if in a university setting, reaching out to a lab, someone in a lab can be really helpful that way and uh, trying to design their own research project. Try and find a mentor. Try and find programs that will mentor you to do research. Yeah, that's great advice. And we're, uh, we're, we're basically out of time here on The Graduates, but I do want to give you a chance uh, to tell us if you have anything on your mind, right, what I call the soapbox segment. If there's anything you really wanted to tell the public about science or about your research, uh, we have this forum here. Yeah, so I think um, my graduate education, especially in this last year since um, the Trump administration has happened to all of us, um, my graduate education has really felt under attack. And it's not just my education, it's science in general. And I'd say that if we'd like to continue to study some of the most biodiverse regions of the world, some of them are most understudied uh, regions of the world, I think that we need to keep funding sources open and we need to have support from our government. We need to have support um, in multiple forms. But I think having an assault on climate change or an assault on the recognition that climate change is actually happening is really hard for us and uh, supporting science is really important. So I think, you know, it shouldn't go without saying that we need to support science through policy, through legislation and by, um, you know, contacting our legislators and saying these are things that matter. You know, the National Science Foundation, I feel like is just having things cut left and right from their budgets. And that affects us as researchers because we need that funding to do work. You know, it's not just to, you know, fund my research, but this is stuff that contributes to not just the state of knowledge in general, but to the well-being of our planet. So, you know, stay involved, stay active, stay aware, watch out for science. It matters too. It 
it's not just about what it affects in our textbooks, but what it affects in our communities and as the state of our planet as a whole. Excellent. Well, we are out of time here on The Graduates. Uh, my name is Tesla Munson, and you have been listening to, that's right, The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley. Uh, today I've been joined by Roxy Cruz, who is a botanist or a plant ecophysiologist in the Department of Integrated Biology. And uh, she's been telling us all about her work in the tropics and climbing trees throughout Central and South America and looking at how they interact with water resources uh, and just telling us about how important science is and and how amazing your work is. It's really interesting. Um, And yeah, I know. I wish I don't know if I'm going to ever climb a tree like that, but I'll put it on my bucket list. It's something to do. I'll take you out there. (laughs) Sounds good. Uh, And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. But until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.